Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Amen. Amen. Working off the principle that it does no harm to say thank you repeatedly. If you were not here last week, I do want to just express on behalf of myself and my family a heartfelt thank you for the gift of sabbatical. The strange markings on my feet, the suntan that covered part of my feet but not the straps is beginning to fade as I know that I can look in the distance and I am no longer on sabbatical as my emails daily remind me. But I am drinking from that well of deep nourishment and renewal. And I want to share a story that some of you may be aware of as part of uh, that sabbatical at the couple of weeks that we spent in Israel, specifically Jerusalem, and a church in Jerusalem called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some of you have been there. It is considered perhaps the holiest site in Christianity or in Christendom, if you like. The place uh, believed to be where Jesus' crucifixion took place, the site, if you like, the Rock of Golgotha on Calvary, and also the same site a little bit further along uh, where Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. Like there's the axis or the epicenter, it's around which the, the world of our faith spins. A special and holy place, an ancient site dating back most likely to the early 4th, to the middle of the 4th century in terms of when the first church was built there. And we began early Christianity in not getting on with each other. If you've ever had a disagreement with anybody in church, you're in great, long, good company uh, because there are three groups, there are other groups, but the three main groups that struggle to get along in that church, and we've met some of them, uh, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians, and the Roman Catholics. If you want to do a little bit of research for yourselves, you'll discover, it might be even slightly shocked, that there have been more, there's been more than one brawl inside the holiest place in Christendom over something as serious as leaving a chair in the wrong place. You can imagine their altar guild, a serious group of people. Well, uh, the struggle between these different groups is so significant that there is something called the status quo. It sounds like a very Anglican solution to something. They live in the status quo, which means that no one group can control the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And most importantly of all, nobody gets to keep the key. Anyone who's had any experience in church knows that the person that keeps the keys is very important. Don't mess with the person who has the most keys. It used to be Maurice, now it's Jeff. The key, since the 12th century, has been kept by a Muslim family. That was instituted by the Ottomans. Now there are actually two families. One family keeps the key, then a member of that family, every morning before five in the morning, transports the key and gives it to the other family member so they can unlock the doors. And at 9 p.m. at night, the same thing happens and the door is locked. And I know that because I got to see that from the inside of the church. Now, I don't know how many people have done a lock-in in a church, but I think on the sort of league tables of lock-ins, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre might win. Complete dumb luck, in all honesty. We were wandering along, and somebody needed to visit somewhere, and we did, and read a magazine, and before we knew it, 
we had managed to get into a small number of people, a small number of places available. Fifteen people per night are allowed to spend the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I don't mind saying my first thought was, I wouldn't mind just sleeping for the night instead. But then I realized, no, this is a great opportunity. Perhaps I should make the most of it and go. And I did. From 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., three rules. No sleeping. No lying down in case you're cheating. And no talking. We arrive and there are two groups. There are only two types of Christianity at that time of day, apparently. Orthodox or Roman Catholic, or Catholic. So I knew it wasn't Orthodox, and they said Catholic, and I said, well, I'm not going to try and explain Episcopalian to you right now. Close enough. And we sat down with the Catholics and watched the door be closed. Now, if you've been to that church or seen pictures of it or video, you'll appreciate that there are thousands of people that gather every day. I've been with a group that took about two hours to get from here to that baptism font. Crowded with people to get to some of these holy sites, the place of Jesus' crucifixion and where he was laid in the tomb. And it was something to be there, just me, at the foot of the cross. I wandered around, I looked at the artwork, I prayed, I strained my eyes trying to read through the Gospel of John in different segments. In the dim light of that church, I stood over the tomb of Jesus. And by the time I got to about two in the morning, all I could think was, oh Lord, please let there be a miracle. The doors swing open, I can go down and sleep at home. In other words, the first bit of reporting back from my sabbatical is that your rector failed the holiness test. I flunked sainthood. But reading the reading from Exodus this morning, I feel like I'm in reasonably good company. We think about Moses. Now, you may have first learned about Moses as a child. It's maybe the first time you're hearing the name. Who knows? Let me give you a little bit of background. Moses, the name meaning one who is drawn out of the water, born at a time when the firstborn sons were being killed. He is rescued, if you like, almost by a miraculous chance that the daughter of Pharaoh would be there and would raise this child out of the water and then weaned by and cared for by his own mother, Yet living as an alien in somebody else's home, if you like. And then there's this moment of encounter or a sort of uh, a moment of truth within his life where he sees one of the Hebrew slaves who for years have been kept in captivity and experiencing harsh conditions is being beaten by a taskmaster and something in Moses comes alive. Except he completely overdoes it. As probably a person with poor boundaries, I imagine, and he takes a stone and kills the taskmaster. Moses then flees. And so when we encounter Moses in the Exodus that we heard this morning, from that reading that we heard this morning, we're encountering somebody who is leading another life, a double life, if you like, a life that is not the one that truly belongs to him. He's tending to the flock of his father-in-law but he's really living as an exile, somebody who can't face his past, perhaps somebody who can't face himself. Maybe you've been there, not perhaps having committed a terrible crime, but maybe there is something in your own past that you look back on and think, 
I'd rather not go back to that. I once heard a survivor of cancer talk about the struggle of living with having had a cancer diagnosis and battled through it as having to need to return to the fire. That was a season of life that, was, um, that burned him. But the only way for his heart and his, his mind, his spirit, if you like, to, to move past that and through that and to carry that with him was to return to that place. Sometimes it is things that happen to us. Sometimes it is things that we have done or failed to have done. We can all carry those burdens. I imagine as Moses arrives at this extraordinary site, he is carrying a burden too. Now the burning bush is one of the more remarkable, and here's a, a fancy word that theologians use to sort of make sure they keep on getting paid, theophany. It just merely means a showing of God, that God breaks through in human history. It's one of the most iconic moments, not just because of Charlton Heston. It's an iconic moment because it is the beginning of the central story of the faith of the Hebrew people. In many ways, the central story of Judaism, that God will break into human history to free his people. It reveals God's nature, not only as creator, but liberator. And we know it's so central because that theme of the Exodus repeats itself through biblical history, if you read the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So here Moses is, a central figure in the biblical story. And what does he do? Faced with the glory of God, Moses does not bow down and worship. He doesn't say, how awesome is this sight? It's interesting, you say, well, maybe I should take a look, almost sort of casually. Moses is so fixated on himself, struggling so much with his own sense of inadequacy, his own sense of deficiency, that he almost trips over himself on the way to that holy ground. Who am I that I should go to the Egyptians? And if you read further into the chapter, that we read from in Exodus beyond our reading this morning or here, a series of what look like excuses, but are probably just a revelation of what's really uh, Moses has been living with for some time. Well, what should I say when I go there? And who should I say sent me? Well, what if they don't listen to me? Well, you know, I've always struggled with public speaking. I'm slow of speech, till eventually it's one of the most honest lines in the whole of Scripture. Maybe you have uh, said this for yourself. I have, I'm sure. Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. Can't somebody else do this? He is beset with anxiety about being inadequate to the task. Now, it's interesting that we can sometimes have perhaps at too much of a distance a, a view that dismisses the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot to be concerned about the story of the liberation of the Hebrew slaves, particularly what happens to the Egyptians, but also what happens to the Canaanites and the other people living in the land. It's not a clean story, but no stories ever are. But at this moment, often our, 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 our view of the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance, is a God of judgment. But in this moment on this holy ground with this burning bush, God is not interested in Moses' credentials. He's not interested in whether Moses measures up. God has already decided. 
I've chosen you. And I'd like to think I could have chosen somebody else. That is one of the great gifts, perhaps even the great scandals. And we live in a world where we get measured up all the time. I wonder if we could actually even think of another way to measure children beyond the many ways that we already do. That God is not interested in measuring us up at all if we read the story of Moses and the burning bush. It makes me think of a wonderful line from Gregory Ball. You've probably heard me preach about him before. The Jesuit priest, nearly 30 years of working with gangs in Los Angeles, helping to usher people and shepherd people and walk with them as they make their way out of a destructive life into a healed life, into a life that is restored. And he has this line, with all of that experience, all of the pain that he must have witnessed, the many funerals that he's officiated over, he says, God is too busy loving us to have any time to be disappointed. God is too busy loving us to have any time to be disappointed. God is too busy loving Moses to have any time to be disappointed, let alone the extent to which Moses is disappointed with himself. That, I think, is the beginning of the liberation of the people in slavery. When one person receives that gift of God's love, think about ourselves, think about the world we live in, particularly when, which seems to be any year, we're in an election cycle. How much judgment plays a role in the life that we live or the world around us. Scripture is crystal clear. Only God is to judge. And I wonder whether the opposite of judgment is not mercy, but delight. God delights in Moses. God delights in his people and stands in awe of all that they have had to carry. It does not stand in judgment in over how they carry it. Perhaps there is somebody in your life whom you have struggled to love. I know there is in mine. What might it be like to think of one thing that you might delight in about them? taking one step of an infinite number of steps until you can get to the, the fullness of how God sees that person who's so busy loving them, they haven't, he, God hasn't got time for disappointment. Or perhaps we might imagine ways that we can find delightful people whom the world has forgotten how to delight in. those who seem to have lost their life, those whom the world has treated as refuse, the poor, the unloved, the broken. For as we hear in the gospel this morning, the different kind of life that we're called to is one where we will lose the life where we have to measure up, that we'll let go of that in order to find the life that really is life in the midst of God's delight. And perhaps hardest of all, I wonder if there is something delightful about you, something about yourself that you could name 
that you could pray about, that you could rejoice in, just a slither of the full image of the glory of God that God sees in you all the time. Sometimes when I prepare families for baptism and every church that I've been, there's always a slightly different policy about what you do with cameras. And I think in this day and age we say, we give up. Because we recognize that at this particular moment in this family's life, I say, when, when I'm holding, whoever the priest is, is holding that child, and you are looking at your child, and, and in that moment it is the most precious thing there could be in the whole world. That surge of love that you might feel is how God sees that child all the time. Take off the sandals from your feet. For when we learn to delight in the creation of God that God delights in all the time, we'll discover that holy ground is all around us, especially in the person right next to you now. Amen.